0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Does a space battalion bring to mind lasers, starships, and distant planets? The U.S. just deployed one, but it's EarthBound. Perspective on what space soldiers from Colorado are doing in Kuwait. Then, Pueblo just hired its first female fire chief.
1: As a female, I think you're more aware of the fact that you have to work hard and and never slack off to make the right impression.
0: Then, one woman's journey to recover from a life-changing bicycle crash. Plus, community gardens in Westminster echo the land's agricultural past.
2: It really is this kind of lost history right there in the middle of a whole lot of development.
0: And the music of Bollywood conveys much more than a romantic comedy set in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Space Support Team 26, it sounds like a name straight out of science fiction. But in reality, this unit of a half a dozen Colorado National Guard soldiers recently deployed to Kuwait. They're helping with the war in Afghanistan and other military goals in Southwest Asia. Space support teams assist soldiers on the ground using assets outside the atmosphere. As they begin their work, we thought we'd take the chance to learn more about what these soldiers do. Major Scott Sharkey is here. He's the executive officer of the 117th Space Battalion of the Colorado National Guard, which includes the team now in Kuwait. Major Sharkey, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: First, in the most basic sense, what does a space soldier do? They don't actually leave the ground, right?
3: Not yet. We're working on that. Uh, (laughs) I would say the best way to categorize what they do comes to three broad areas. First of all, planning. Secondly, fighting. And third, and pertinent only to the National Guard soldiers, helping. So let me talk about each one of those real briefly, if I could. Combatant commanders across the world are constantly conducting contingency plans, worrying about what if this happens, what if that happens. Um, people in the Middle East have a certain set of problems they're worried about. People in Europe have a different set of problems. They rely upon their staffs to inform them on what those issues are, how to best plan for them. What the space support soldiers do, the space support team, the, the one you just alluded to, they integrate with those division commander staffs to make sure that the space capabilities that can be brought to bear for those contingency plans are are the latest and greatest that the nation has to offer. They advise, they make recommendations, and they ensure that all of those capabilities are integrated into that planning process. As far as fighting goes, it's just what it sounds like. There are active combat operations throughout the world. We continue to um, pursue ISIS in the Middle East, and there are soldiers on the ground that rely upon support from above to make sure that those operations are conducted as successfully as possible. So these space soldiers are providing—I have to be careful about the specifics I get into here—they're providing capabilities to the the soldiers on the ground to make sure that those combat operations can be conducted as successfully as possible. And then third, and unique only to the Colorado National Guard, is helping And in things like wildfires, floods, um, other national disasters. The governor has the option to deploy us to support civil authorities, and space soldiers do have a role to play in supporting um, our firefighters, emergency responders, and other uh, civil authorities when it comes to um, fighting natural disasters.
0: And you've mentioned space capabilities a couple of times. What is a space capability?
3: Yeah, again, I'm going to be as broad as I can here, but I'll just give an anecdote or a hypothetical anecdote if that's helpful. So let's say that a um, commander was planning on conducting an operation in some particularly unforgiving terrain and perhaps wanted to employ some weapon systems that were dependent on having very precise navigation um, information being available to those weapon systems. So what we would do is look at a couple of variables, such as the um, orbital alignment of a GPS constellation, maybe if there's a solar weather event that would degrade those those overhead assets, and we would make a recommendation to that commander to say, hey sir, hey ma'am, between this hour and that hour, this is the ideal time to conduct this operation because we have looked at a variety of variables and can um, advocate that this is the time, the best time that you'll have ideal coverage to make sure that those assets on the ground you rely upon are most likely to be successful.
0: We're hearing a lot about the space in regard to the military lately. President Trump wants to create a new branch of the military called the Space Force. In the meantime, the Pentagon is looking for permanent home for the current U.S. Space Command, and it could be at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. Why so much attention on space right now?
3: That's a great question, and it's actually a really exciting time for us to be involved in the space community. So I'll just take it from the smallest echelon to the largest, but I want to say right up front that a lot of these um, formations that you mentioned are just proposals or ideas, and they're by no means fully formed. So I will tell you what I know about, how all those currently exist, um, and then we'll let uh, you know the, the hardworking men and women of the, the defense enterprise and, and Congress figure out the details and, and figure out what exactly the end state looks like. So I'll start the smallest. So the 117th Space Battalion is part of the Colorado Army National Guard. Um, And we have a training relationship with the 1st Space Brigade on Peterson Air Force Base. The 1st Space Brigade is unique in that it is the only brigade in the the country that has what we call multi-component. So that means there are active duty soldiers, United States Army reservists, and Colorado Army National Guardsmen all sharing a single training relationship. So that's unique. That's the current state of Colorado Guard Space Forces. Space Command was something that was stood up in 1985 near the crescendo of the Cold War and then it was actually stood down after 9-11 during the post-9-11 reorganization of sort of the defense enterprise. Um, Given that we are now pivoting away from the sort of counterinsurgency, anti-terrorism fight, and pivoting towards what we call a near-peer fight, so adversaries like Russia and China, um, space has understandably become a new area of emphasis. So part of the, it was signed in 2018, but it was the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act. It instructed DOD to stand up to re-stand up um, Space Command, and that process is currently ongoing. Um, there are, like I said before, a lot of hardworking men and women in the DOD figuring out what exactly that looks like, where it's going to end up, and as you said, you know some sites in Colorado are, are certainly in, in the conversation, and then how exactly it's going to be staffed. And then finally, Space Force of the three is the least fully formed. It's a proposal. Um, the proposal is that it would operate similar to the way that the Marine Corps does, in that it would fall, whereas the Marine Corps falls under the Department of the Navy, Space Force, Space Corps, whatever it ends up becoming, would potentially fall under the Department of the Air Force. Going back a couple decades even further, you can think of it as the way the Army Air Corps was stood up initially as part of the Army, and then it um, went on to become the U.S. Air Force. Um, the important part for us, honestly, is that we don't really, it doesn't really matter that to, to us that much, because... We focus on what we can affect. We have a mission to provide as many ready, trained, and able to deploy soldiers as possible. And what organization it falls under, we really, um, I don't want to say we don't care, but it's not something we can affect. So we focus on things that we can affect. And that's uh, making sure that our soldiers are equipped, man-trained, and ready to deploy at a moment's notice.
0: So that really helps us understand some of the differences and even some of the similarities of a space force in the existing U.S. Space Command. Where does the National Guard fit in?
3: Yeah, great question as well. Um, The Colorado National Guard is exceptional in that we provide the vast majority of space forces across the entire formation. Um, I'd say it's a combination of a couple of factors. Um, there's obviously a large military presence in the state, you know, Peterson Air Force Base, Schriever Air Force Base, Buckley Air Force Base, um, the Academy, uh, Air Force Academy, uh, Fort Carson. There, there's a large military presence here. So that's sort of the first data point to consider. Uh, the second is that it's a really high-tech economy, and not just a high-tech economy, but a high-tech economy with a lot of people that in aerospace and aeronautical engineering. Um, and because of those two factors, you have a, I'll call it a talent pool to draw from, where people have the technical skills, they are Able to obtain the necessary security clearances, which which is a really big deal, and then finally, because of you know, people tend to serve who have family or friends that have served. Because of the close-knit nature of the military community in Colorado, you have people that are inclined to serve and inclined to uh, to serve their country using those technical skills that, that they've amassed. So because of that kind of happy confluence of, of factors, Colorado is the premier state in the National Guard when it comes to providing space forces.
0: And I'm interested in those technical skills also, because members of the National Guard, they have day jobs, of course. For these units, what kind of fields do they generally come from?
3: Yeah, another great question. So the short answer is everywhere. But um, a little more specificity is that we have a lot of people that work in the defense industry, a lot of people that are aerospace engineers um, in their, their full-time job, um, a lot of people that work in software. I'm, a, uh, I'm a, in a software development organization for my um, civilian employer charter communications. And then we also have a lot of people that are network engineers for, you know, the Cisco's of the world and stuff like that. You know, that said, we also have um, a uh, a staff sergeant, Kiva, in our formation, whose full-time job is she's a musician. So you'll have everything from musicians to, you know, software engineers to um, aeronautical engineers. And the important part is that these people have made the choice to serve, and regardless of what background they bring, what skill set they have, Um, The most important thing is their willingness to serve the state, serve the country, and just be ready to conduct the mission whenever called upon.
0: And like you said, you're the director of software engineering at Charter Communications here in Centennial, but you've also been on deployments.
3: Yes, I deployed once in 2009-2010 to Baghdad um, with the 30th Infantry Brigade Combat Team. And then I just returned in the fall of 2017 on another deployment with the 169th Field Artillery Brigade, and we also participated in a mission similar to that of ours 26 um, where we had um, responsibilities in both um, the, it's called Operation Spartan Shield, which is a sort of a forward posturing deterrence mission, and then also the ongoing fight, Operation Inherent Resolve, the fight against ISIS.
0: And how often are your troops deploying?
3: It varies, but generally speaking, a National Guard soldier can plan on deploying every four to five years. Now, there are um, opportunities to deploy uh, with greater frequency if you'd like to, but we have a model where for every year that you're deployed, you are entitled to four years of what they call dwell time. But again, for some people that are enthusiastic about deploying or that the circumstances work out better for what's going on in their civilian career, they have the, they have the opportunity to volunteer to deploy on a more frequent basis.
0: Major Sharkey, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Major Scott Sharkey is the executive officer of the 117th Space Battalion of the Colorado National Guard. Space Support Team 26 is a part of that battalion they recently deployed to Kuwait. Who fights fires in the United States? mostly men. Women make up only 7% of all firefighters, and about half of paid fire departments have never even hired a female firefighter. When Barbara Huber joined the Pueblo Fire Department two decades ago, she was one of two women there. Now there are eight. This week, she became the first woman to take over as the chief of the Pueblo Fire Department. Hi, Barbara.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Doing well. You joined the Pueblo Fire Department in 1998. How have you seen it change over the last two decades?
1: Well, we've seen a lot of changes, especially when it comes to uh, the EMS side of things. We were uh, basic life support mostly when I came on, and then we shifted to all pumpers being advanced life support. And now you're seeing another shift gearing towards more community involvement and having more of a proactive approach in the community. And have you ever
0: faced pushback or negative comments from people inside or outside the department based on your gender?
1: Um, not really negative, just... Just a, a little bit of uh, maybe energy, as you would call it. You, you can feel that you, you have to prove yourself, but everybody has to do that.
0: Tell me a little bit more about that. What was that like for you?
1: I think, uh, you know, as a female, I think you're more aware of the fact that you have to work hard and, and never slack off to make the right impression and and always be a part of what's going on so that it doesn't make the appearance as though you're trying to avoid anything.
0: And what about the people inside your fire department? Did you feel like they had your back?
1: You know, I was fortunate. No matter where I worked, I had mentors or people who took me under their wing and they would fight the fight for me, whether I was present or not. And they brought a lot of people along.
0: And we should also note, as we're talking about women proving themselves, that women and men have to meet the same physical requirements to be a firefighter. There's not a separate test for women. You became the first woman in Pueblo to become a captain in 2007, and now you're the department's first female fire chief. What experience or perspective as a woman do you bring to that leadership role?
1: I think sensitivity and compassion of the fact that everybody has a different viewpoint and that we're open to learn more about people and what they bring to the table, what are their strengths. I think having to, to do that myself, it has given me the opportunity to, to be a good leader and a good role model for those scenarios.
0: And like we've said, fewer than 10% of firefighters in the U.S. are women. What do you make of those low numbers?
1: Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of physical challenges that do exist. You have to keep that up just by the women's natural body mechanics. And and, uh, other than that, uh, we would have to dig deeper to find the answer to that question and, and survey people and say, why would you not consider this job?
0: do you think that young women are encouraged to take on these sorts of roles in the same way, or do you feel like that's at all part of it?
1: I do. I think that we need to be more proactive and be out there in the middle schools and the high schools and be sending that message to everybody that this career is available to anybody. And like anything in life, you need to know what the obstacles are and you need to train or prepare for those. And then you can obtain anything.
0: Let's talk about diversity more broadly. Last fall, Pueblo was specifically seeking to hire more firefighters of color. How representative is the Department now of Diversity in Pueblo?
1: Well, if you were looking for whether or not it represents the population, it doesn't. But we've made a lot of efforts to try to improve that. We've changed our entry-level requirements. We um, go out and do a lot more recruiting. Um, We're looking at, in the future, what else can we change to allow more of the residents of Pueblo to make it to that final stage. So
0: it sounds like that remains a goal.
1: It, it is a goal. Your first day as fire
0: chief was Monday, August 5th. As you take over this role, what challenges are top of mind for you?
1: Um, always the morale of the personnel. I want to have a great team that enjoys working together and enjoys working in their community. So bringing them together and bringing them up if if I have 10% that are excellent, I want to grow that number to 20%. I want everybody to bring somebody along. And so that's an important goal. We have a lot of challenges as far as infrastructure. As a chief, I need to deal with those items. But looking at how we respond to calls and how we can improve that to keep our firefighters healthy, that's an important goal for me also.
0: Tell me a little bit about your infrastructure challenges you're facing.
1: Well, a lot of our stations are older. Not all of them have more than one bathroom, probably about half. And so even with the cancer scare, uh, ch- challenges that are going on right now and the reality that firefighters um, get cancer more frequent than most populations, I'd like to see us improve the bathroom facilities so that when we return from a fire, everyone can shower as quickly as possible to decontaminate themselves, things like that.
0: I had not considered that having more bathrooms would allow people to just shower faster and get carcinogens off. Are there fire risks specific to Pueblo? Um,
1: we have an industrial park, so that has certain challenges. We have the, the airport, and so the foam has its own challenges. So there are certain areas that we definitely have to be concerned about and aware of as far as decontamination and cleaning ourselves up and our gear and what we can track into the community.
0: This is a mentally and physically demanding career. I wonder, is there a story that comes to mind that illustrates why you stick with it?
1: Oh, <laughs> because it is a challenging and stressful career. I think there's a breed of us out there that thrive on challenge, and I'm probably one of those people. And the people I work with are wonderful. They're, they're dedicated. They're, they're proud of what they do, and I enjoy working with them.
0: Thanks for having this conversation, Barb. Thank you. Barbara Huber is the first woman to become chief of the Pueblo Fire Department. She stepped into that role on Monday. A ghost bike will be dedicated in Parker today in memory of one of the four bicyclists killed in traffic crashes on the Front Range in July. Ghost bikes are painted all white and placed at intersections as a stark visual reminder of creating safer roads. CPR's Nathaniel Miner has the story of one woman whose recovery from an accident has been a journey on many different levels.
4: I'm in Allie Clerkin's backyard in South Denver. She's a quiet 20-something who's worried I'll judge her for the state of her messy garage. We walk in to see her bicycle.
5: This is where there there was a scratch here on the seat.
4: But overall, it looks like it's in pretty good shape. Yeah. This is the bike Clerken would ride to her marketing job in downtown Denver. She says it was a nice 30 minute piece of time to have to herself every day.
5: If I happened to get exercise from it, that was a win for me.
4: She had just moved to the city, and this became her routine for years until one morning in May 2016.
5: I was riding northbound on Marion. Um, in the bike lane.
4: That bike lane is one of the busiest in the city. Only a thin line of white paint separates cars from bikers. And that isn't always enough to prevent a collision, which is exactly what happened to Clerkin.
5: I remember feeling him hit me from my left side, feeling my head hit the top of his car, feeling my shoulder hit the side view mirror um, of his. And then I remember feeling my body hit the ground.
4: The driver and other people stopped to help. She remembers people covering her with their clothing because she was going into shock. She remembers the pain, and she remembers a bystander calling her husband.
5: His account of the story is also in some ways traumatic because he just got this call from a stranger that said, your wife's been hit by a car, you better come to her quickly. And all he could see was ambulances and fire trucks turning down the road, and he didn't know what he was walking up on.
4: They went to the hospital. Her upper arm was broken, her shoulder dislocated. Her elbow and hand were broken, too. She needed surgery.
5: I remember later having a conversation with the doctor and saying, "Okay, so, you know, can you just put my arm back in its place and we're, you know, I'll go back to work tomorrow. And he was like, no, you're not going back to work for a while.
4: (laughs) Clerken stayed home for more than two months. She was in constant pain. She was newly married, and her husband became her caretaker. She had to process what had happened. She felt sadness, confusion, and anger. But slowly, she felt better. She got back to work. And sometime later, as she was driving home, she decided that was the day. She was going to get back on her bike.
5: And it was a perfect night because it was a night that I was alone and I could just do it for myself. There was no fanfare around it. And I rode on the sidewalk um, for a couple of blocks to Washington Park.
4: She went all the way around the park. And she told her husband about it later.
5: He was like, you know that this is the second year anniversary. And I didn't even consciously put that together of like, this is the second year anniversary of me getting into an accident. And here I am doing this.
4: Last month, there was another crash right near where Clerkin was hit. A dump truck driver took a sudden turn and hit Alexis Bounds, killing her. She had two sons and a husband. Clerken didn't know her, but she's taking her death personally.
5: You know, it, it to me, it wasn't another sad story of a death. It was something that was like, wow, I know exactly where that was. I know exactly how it feels to be hit by a car. Not to that extent, of course, but it felt like so much deeper.
4: Clerken says more bike infrastructure is needed to keep cyclists safe, that means things like physical barriers between a bike lane and vehicle traffic. Cities like Denver and Fort Collins are adding some of those things, but advocates say it's not happening soon enough. But Clerkin likely won't be using them anytime soon. After her ride through Washington Park, Clerken put her bike in the garage. She proved to herself she could ride it again, but she just doesn't enjoy it anymore.
5: To me, it feels like there's this invisible block around my bike. Um, and I, I can't, I can't get to it. I can't go. I can't, I can't do it. I like, it's too hard for me to get to my bike.
4: And that makes her sad. She feels like something's been taken away, but for her own good, she's decided she needs to let it go. I'm Nathaniel Minor, CPR News.
0: Sometimes the people places are named for get lost to time. Take the Allison Community Gardens at Simper Farm in Westminster. Who's Allison? Who's Simper? And what did they mean to Colorado to have land named after them? A new outdoor theater production delves into this small slice of state history in The Last Apple Tree. The show comes from Boulder-based theater group The Catamounts and is directed by Amanda Berg-Wilson. Amanda, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: This is a unique theater experience in that it's a series of vignettes around the farm. Audiences move in small groups, and each group won't necessarily see the show in the same order as other groups. What went into those creative choices?
2: We just fell in love with these little corners of the farm. And we thought if we bring all 60 audience members at once to each one of these corners, they're not going to have this intimate experience with these little nooks and crannies of this piece of open space.
0: There's also quite a bit of music in the show. Tell me more about that. Well,
2: when Rich Newman from the city of Westminster first approached me about the project, he wanted it to be outdoors and he knew that he wanted it to be family friendly. And he had originally pictured a musical outside and You know, we at the Catamounts don't do traditional musicals. We don't do traditional theater. Um, And so I started to think about how we could do a musical that was well suited to what we do. And Bonnie and the Clydes is a favorite band of mine, a favorite local band, Um, They have this really rich country sound, but it's an alt-country sound. It feels very organic to Colorado. And so I approached them, and I just said, hey, are you interested in collaborating on this piece? So the first things that I had to begin this project were the site, Semper Farms, and the collaborators, um, Bonnie and Taylor Sims from Bonnie and the Clydes. So we really first and foremost approached the piece thinking about songs and how to make the farm come alive through music. And then we brought Jessica Austin, who wrote the book on, and and she really wrote the vignettes in tandem with the songs being written.
0: And why did the city want to put this on? You know,
2: uh, Rich Newman, who's the director of marketing at the city, just he's so great and creative. Um, He has all of these really interesting events, like an adult Easter egg hunt, and I think like a zombie golf tournament. Um, He's just really thinking about how to bring civic space to life in these really incredibly creative ways. And he's an old fringe theater guy, and he just knew that he wanted to there to be some kind of theatrical event.
0: The show depicts the farm's history through multiple generations of owners. Maybe we can move through that history a little bit. It starts back in the late 1800s with Charles and Julia Simper. Tell me a little bit about them.
2: So Charles Simper is a really interesting guy. He was actually the original typesetter for the Rocky Mountain News. And so that's why he came out here And he homesteaded uh, the original 160 acres that was Semper Farms really as a gentleman farmer. So he didn't come out to make his living as a farmer. He made his living as a newspaper man. But, you know, like a lot of folks who came out here to Colorado at the time, he wanted a little slice of land out here that was, you know, for his family to call their own But then the interesting thing is that he and his wife, Julia, you know, we make some inferences about this in the piece, but we don't have a lot of information about it. But for whatever reasons, they didn't have children, but they were these kind of amazing community leaders. They started a school on the property, a post office on the property, a train depot. So there actually was this little town of Semper, Colorado for a while. And that's really how the piece of land got its start was as this little village right there on the plains.
0: The village of Semper. And actor Maggie Tisdale, who plays Julia Simper in The Last Apple Tree, told us a little more about the Simpers not having children and how the land became a part of their family. Which I love that they sort of fostered this relationship with with the town and with their own land. Since they couldn't pass on their legacy, the land became their legacy. But then at the same time, I think, you know, when Julia, Julia died in 1916, and I think they realized that You know, as they got older, it was hard to maintain the whole farm by themselves. And that's when they sold it to the Allison brothers. But for such a long time, the land was their legacy. Uh, Tell me more about what kind of farm they ran.
2: Well, they actually planted fruit trees. And actually, most of Westminster was fruit orchards at the time. So they planted cherry trees and walnut trees. And of course, they planted apple trees and in fact had a state Champion apple tree that is still on the property to this day, of course, is the inspiration for the piece, the last apple tree.
0: Like we heard from Maggie Tisdale earlier, the Simper family eventually sold the farm to the Allison brothers, who are Greek immigrants. What's their story?
2: So the Allison brothers, uh, George and John, and of course those are their um, Americanized names, owned a candy making business and some candy making shops. And again, you know, as sort of, as many folks' stories are about Colorado, they were interested in a weekend retreat. And so they bought the farm from Charles and Julia in 1916. And again, ran it as kind of gentlemen farmers sort of on the side, um, as they also ran two thriving candy businesses. But it was actually John Allison who really fell in love with the property and ended up retiring there in 1930 and then spending um, the last several decades of his life just living on the farm. With the
4: wind and the wheat the dirt beneath my feet It feels all right to me What I'm looking for is a place in the sun I had on the
3: man that I've become You'll find me
6: on the porch When the day is done I'm looking for my place in the sun.
2: And then he passed it along to his son, Steve, who was also a Westminster cop. <laughs> and Steve passed it along to his daughter, Linda, who ended up passing, you know, selling parts of it off, but then passing it along to the city of Westminster.
1: And I never ever
0: What is this land now? It's
2: open space. It belongs to the Department of Parks and Rec and to the people of Westminster. There is a bike path that goes along the old canal that watered the orchards when they were there. And the old house is still there. It's been restored, partially not the interior, but the exterior. And there are also these wonderful community gardens. They call them the Allison Community Garden after the Allison family. And for $35 a year for a big plot and $21 a year for a small plot, you can go out and tend your own garden right there
0: on the old farm. There's also a character in the show who's a modern-day gardener and a frequent visitor to the farm.
6: So step out into the light and reach up to the sky. Dig a little deeper, let's see what we can find.
1: Making something out of nothing. Getting big when you started out real small. Tasting homegrown, taking first place, tell me. How does your garden grow?
0: Did you feel it was important to depict how this land is used today?
2: We did, because when we went out there, again, this sort of initial field trip that Bonnie and Taylor and Jess and I had, there was this older gentleman who was out there, and of course he saw us poking around and started up a conversation with us, and he just really went into the both the history of the space and what it takes to get to have a plot there. And there was such this richness and pride that he had in being one of the gardeners there on the property and, and knowing the history of the space. And it was really moving to us. And we just thought, you know, this is the legacy. This is the Semper's legacy. They maybe thought initially when they bought this land that it would be passed along to generations of their children. But instead, the legacy is that there are these folks who come out here who feel like it belongs to them and it belongs to the community.
0: Is there anything left of the orchards besides this one last apple tree?
2: There's not. Not that that I am aware of. You know, as happens with progress and with all the folks that have moved to Colorado, um, mostly what is there on the old property are homes and across Pierce are storage units. So it really is this kind of lost history <laughs> right there in the middle of a whole lot of development.
0: Amanda, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Amanda Berg-Wilson is the director of The Last Apple Tree, an outdoor production at Simper Farm in Westminster. The show runs this weekend only. Up next, we keep the music going with a taste of Bollywood, Colorado style. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Do you hear that sound?
6: That is the sound of commercial marijuana cultivation, the vast majority of it, indoors and lots of humming and whirring. Cannabis cultivation takes up so much energy. What it takes to grow pot with no carbon footprint. On the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Bollywood meets the Colorado Mountains in a production that opened this week in Aurora. Dipali Lindblom created the musical Mountains Made for Us as both a romantic comedy and a statement about home and connection.
6: CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf visited a rehearsal recently. The story seems straightforward. Minnie, a dancer, moves to the U.S. and starts a new life. The story is about a girl who leaves India in search of an identity,
7: not just identity, maybe freedom, maybe just that she's somebody, not a woman, not a daughter, just her own self. And of all the places she would end up would be Colorado.
6: Deepali Lindblom dreamed up this show. Minnie's parents don't approve when she falls in love with a Colorado guy. He's from a different culture, a different religion. And this all unfolds with classic Bollywood elements of colorful clothes, music, and dancing. But there's something deeper going on in this rom-com. Lindblom says it's about displacement and what it means to find a new home. About 14 different ethnicities are represented in the cast of 20. Many of them are young refugees Lindblom teaches dance and theater.
7: When I started working with the refugee community, they're still trying to find
6: their identity
7: and I'm so proud to see them coming alive through dance, through music.
6: Lindblom can relate to the search for identity and home. She's lived all over the world, India, Sweden, and Canada. When she moved to Colorado, she felt lost, but the Rocky Mountains grounded her since she grew up near the foothills of the Himalayas. The mountains play a prominent role in her show.
7: There's so much in these mountains that we learn. We learn endurance, we learn beauty, just deep connection to the universe.
6: Mireya Abacos plays Minnie's mother. She's never acted before, but says the work spoke to her, and she hopes it speaks to others. So I keep thinking of the butterfly effect when I think of it,
7: just like this, um combination of people meeting from different backgrounds,
6: having fun and noticing that we all enjoy the same things and we want the same things. Because the show's creator says, matters of the heart cross all boundaries. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News.
0: Mountains Made for Us creator Deepali Lindblom joins me now to share more of this play and her story. Welcome. Thank you. Your play is really an examination of relationships and about working through differences. And I understand this story is similar to that of your mother's. She
7: was the first in her
0: family to marry for love, right? That is correct.
7: Tell me more about that story. So um, she was not only the first one to marry for love, but she was also the first one um, after her great-grandfather to leave the valley, the Himalayas, where she grew up. So she was the first one who decided to go to school um, to study nursing. And it was so funny because after she had studied, uh, finished, so she was disowned because um, she went to do something that uh, no one would do it. No one was allowed to do it because at that point of time, it was very different. So um, after nursing, she got a job in um, in, an, in a hospital where my father was wounded. He was in the army, and um, so he was there, and he was from a different caste, different religion. And uh, but you know, that's love is something that doesn't see that. So he fell in love with my mother and uh, pursued her. <laughs> And uh, came down all the way to the village. And um, I don't know what he said to my grandfather. But after half a day, my grandfather said to my mom, OK, I think this is the man for you. Um, <laughs> so um, so yes, my mother really um, loved my father. But it was a lot of adjustment because they were from different cultures. And um, and so, yeah, so she kind of uh, uh, started a way for all the women in my family uh, to to follow their heart and marry for love, Um, except when she got her own three daughters and she was very protective of us. And she was like, "Um, I don't know uh, what it would be for you to marry someone outside our own community But she also gave us enough independence and good education. And she said, the only thing I can do is trust you. And um, she's done that. How is this place similar to your own love story? Oh, um, it was. okay. so I have to go back a little bit. Um, When I was growing up, I'm dark skinned. I got my father's skin. My mother's very fair and my sister's got my mother's skin. And in India, we are obsessed with fair skin. All the girls have to have fair skin. And so when I was growing up, everybody was teasing me all the time, who is going to marry you? Because you're so dark. And I would always tell them, my sisters, um, wait and see. My husband will be fairer than both of you. Of course, at that point of time, I didn't know he would be so fair. <laughs> so fast forward many years, I did meet my husband who's from Sweden, Um he was do studying um, in a bus, and um, <laughs> he was so lost uh, sitting among all the women because and you he were was in Mumbai at this in, point. Yes, in Mumbai, um, and um, and so and the thing is, it's not that I did not date Indian guys, but you know, um, it's India is still a lot of uh, traditional uh, follower of traditions. So even the guys I dated, they said, the Pali is so unconventional. I don't think so. You'll fit in in our conventional home. And that's how it all started that I said, oh, I have to probably find a guy who's not from India. But of course, I didn't think how would that happen because I'm not leaving India. So, you know, so my husband, you when he was in that bus and and we met and for five minutes and that's all it took. took exactly like my father. Um for you and to to realize that I'm the woman for him, and he literally fought for me. I still remember he said, "I'm on a cliff, and if I have to fall down this cliff, I would do that for you." And to he's an engineer, he's a white guy, and a Swede, who are, they're they're world famous for being so reserved. For him to say this and do this was crazy. And just like in in the play, my mother realized that, and she said, "Anyone who would do for my daughter." Is the man for my daughter, and so she stood by me. When I, of course, she screamed when I first thing I told her I'm marrying a white guy. She really, literally screamed in the phone, and I had to put the phone (laughs) this far away. And Ewan was next to me, and you're holding your hand way out from your face. You're holding the phone far away. And we 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 got engaged before we told her because just so that she, you know, would not uh, kind of uh, come in between.
0: So you met this person, and he's from Sweden, but his work eventually brought you to Colorado. And you said you felt disconnected here
7: at first. Why? Um, maybe it's the, it's the time when I came, four years ago, when this country was going through a big political, cultural change. I think people were taking sides suddenly. People were wondering, um, what is America like? And I came in that scenario Um, and, um, and I also found, or after living here, um, where I lived in the neighborhood where I still live, is that people, um, sometimes have, can have, um, restricted views if they haven't traveled outside. And I think that's also the part of the story where I meet a guy who's never been outside Colorado. And, um, and so the views that you have is, um, very insular. And I think that's what scared me after having lived in Montreal where diversity is a way of life. People from all over, you never even pause to look at each other and say, oh, you're white, you're brown, you're yellow, or whatever skin color. You never pause to think. Here suddenly I felt like not only I'm a woman, I'm an immigrant. And as an artist, there's nothing for me. Four and a half years ago, there was nothing for me. So I felt, um, and I... And when you come from a part of when you've lived in different countries and you come here, you look for people um, who have done the same. And I could not find that. So I guess it was it was stifling experience at that point.
0: We mentioned earlier that you work with refugee communities in Aurora, but this is something that you've done in various cities you've lived in around the world. How did you first get involved with that kind of work?
7: So this is what happened. So I came, so I'm a dancer. I'm a dancer and a choreographer. um, And I had um, done very well for myself in Montreal. I still go back every year to do shows and performances. So when I came here I wanted to dance, um, I could not get anyone to take me or hire me. So I started doing theater and i that's how i ended up in aurora cultural art district which is in north aurora with aurora fox and vintage theater where actually this place is going to take place when i st- when i started going around um when i started walking around i saw people from all over the world i did not see a single white person and i'm saying what is this place and i started going deeper and i and i said why aren't they coming to see the place? why aren't a plays about them and that's how i discovered that just in the two-mile radius of within this performing arts district is is people from 120 countries. And many of them have arrived here through war, through civil rights problems, through human rights problems. They've come as asylees. And that's when I decided that if I am on the margin, if I, who is well-educated, I consider myself empowered, I'm on the margin. What about these people? What about them? What about their story? And we have a very rich Performing arts tradition in each of this country, they don't have television. The way they connect is through song, singing together, dancing together. When they have, when they're sad, they share their grief through their song. When they're happy, they celebrate through song and dance. And I wasn't seeing anything of that. And I said, I want to change that. I want to, I want to bring their art. And I don't want to do it for them. I don't want to tell their story. I want them to tell their own story. And so two and a half years ago, I started working with them after founding Roshni. Um, the whole purpose of, of the, to just uplift, inspire, and heal people.
0: In the last four and a half years, you clearly have found a place for your art. I wonder, why did you tell this story in this play as a Bollywood
7: musical? Where else can I talk about the mountains? Um, I'm from the Himalayas and I've been I grew up on uh, John Denver singing about the Rocky Mountains and I always dreamt of coming here. I always dreamt of finding love here. And I came here and these mountains they sustained me. And of course, like I said, Mr. Warner's voice too. <laughs> um, I came here, I fell in love with the mountains and I there's something so magical about it, something so... It doesn't, it has a freedom that comes from within. It, it shows you endurance. That's what people are. We're enduring people. Humanity endures. And I think I wanted to connect that. I wanted to connect the hearts of people in somehow in telling a story uh, through love. And I think I chose love because I think it's so entertaining. Um you know, love is something that people want to talk about and and also because it gives you a lot of reason to dance. <laughs> so, so I guess I wanted to uh, put all of those elements together and uh, create um, a magic uh, out of that where hearts get connected, not just for, for a boy and a girl a uh, man and a woman in this case, but also of the parents, of the friends that she meets, Mini meets here. And then she says uh, in the play that um, I came here with no money and no friends, but because of all of you, I feel like the richest woman. And maybe it's not here on purpose, but Colorado is is Great. getting there. Deepali,
0: thank you for joining us. Deepali, Lynn Bloom's organization is Roshni. Her new show is Mountains Made for Us. It runs at Vintage Theater in Aurora through August 18th. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. Thanks for joining us.